From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. One cool thing about the Jesuits is the huge number of incredible men who have served the Lord so faithfully over the centuries. A lot of these guys are so well-known you can call them by just a single name. Ignatius, Xavier, Gonzaga, Canisius, Faber, Claver, Arupe, Teilhard, Hopkins. But there have been thousands of other fascinating Jesuits who aren't quite as famous, and it's always fun to learn about them. So I invited Robert Ellsberg onto the show today, someone who has forgotten more about saints and other holy men and women than I'll ever know. Robert is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Orbis Books, the esteemed publishing arm of the Mary Knoll Order. He is also the author of Blessed Among Us, a column on saints and other saintly witnesses that appears in the monthly Catholic prayer resource, Give Us This Day. He has written about over 1,000 saints, both canonized and not. So I wanted to know from his perspective, who are some Jesuits he has encountered in his research and his own faith journey who have inspired him? In particular, who are three underknown Jesuits we might all want to meet? So he picked three, Jean-Pierre de Cassade, Alfred Delp, and Walter Chiswick. We also talked a lot about Dorothy Day, which is going to happen anytime you get Robert on the line. He served as the editor of the Catholic Worker newspaper in the final years of Dorothy Day's life. In fact, Dorothy introduced him to the work of Jean-Pierre de Cassade, and he told me that story in this conversation. I also asked Robert about his famous father, Daniel Ellsberg, who in 1971 released a classified document related to the United States history of Vietnam called the Pentagon Papers to the press. His dad's bold act of heroism had a huge impact on Robert's life, especially in his strong pacifist views. This conversation was one of my favorites in the history of AMDG. We covered so much ground about so many interesting people and interesting topics. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, Robert Ellsberg, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? I'm just great. Thank you. So I've invited you on uh, today as someone who has studied and written about lives of saints and other holy men and women to talk about three of your favorite Jesuits, maybe three underrated Jesuits. Um, but before we jump into that, I would love to for you to introduce yourself to our listeners to talk a little bit uh, about your background and what you do. Sure. I am the publisher of Orbis Books, uh, which is the publishing arm of the Marinol Fathers and Brothers. I've worked there for 35 years now, so more than half my life. Uh, I guess I, I got started on this journey uh, when I was 19 and, and worked at the Catholic Worker for five years, which happened to be the last five years of Dorothy Day's life. And uh, I became a Catholic while I was there, and it was really through that experience that I was uh, introduced to the world of the saints, uh, which has also been an important part of my life, uh, writing books about saints and holy people. Great. So, yeah, could you tell us some story, like uh, just what was that like? You're 19. How did you find the, the worker? Why was that something you did? And uh, yeah, any memories you have from that time? I went to the Catholic Worker in 1975. I was 19 and I had taken a leave of absence uh, for a year. At least that's what I planned from from college. Uh, and planned to stay there just for a few uh, months and maybe move around. 
And uh, after I'd been there for just a, a few months, uh, Dorothy Day asked me if I would be the managing editor of the newspaper. Uh, so I was 20 when I took that on. I was not a Catholic. I was, uh, you know, really had no particular qualifications for something like that. Uh, but uh, there, there was really nobody else around at the time who uh, was interested, and and I was particularly interested in 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 the kind of the uh, you know the the intellectual aspects of the Catholic worker history, uh, the connections with uh, the peace movement and and radical action. That's what it had really attracted me there. And I think uh, Dorothy uh, found that appealing. The funny thing is that uh, you know you know in a funny way that 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 really set me on the uh, course of my vocation in life as a writer and as an editor. And 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 ironically enough, as Dorothy Day's editor, I've edited five volumes of her writings. So evidently, uh, she saw something there in me, or at least maybe she planted something there in me. Uh, that has uh, really directed the rest of my life. This was someone, again, like Dorothy Day, whose cause for sainthood is open and someone who is so admired by a lot of, of different people, both within the, the church and, and outside the church. I, and there, there are just not many folks you can meet who, who had that chance to work with her in such a way. And I'm just wondering, any, what memories do you have of her? What was she like? Uh, in person, what was she like to work for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just what what do you remember? Any specific stories or uh, or, or times that things that really struck uh, stuck with you? Well, I, I knew her, of course, in the you know the last years of her life when she, as she said, she was sort of retired and was kind of turning over the day to day work uh, over to the people she called the young people. And I was pretty young. I think that what's interesting and surprising you know, for a lot of people to know about Dorothy was just how fun it was to be with her because you see pictures of her and she always seems to have a, a very serious expression on her face and she had such a serious message. Uh, but what really attracted people, you know, to the worker, I think, to work with her was this sense that here was somebody who really was getting having a lot of fun in life uh, and that, that everything was sort of an adventure. And that was striking to me, you know, given that she was, you know, like the oldest person I'd ever met, uh, that that she called herself retired. But but there was this youthfulness about her and this uh, energy and attraction to adventure and to the heroic. And that's something that she uh, that connected her with young people. And she she liked to be around young people and she liked to hear their stories. And she sympathized with them, empathized with them in their in their struggles and even the mistakes that they made because she could identify with that. Um, she, you know, she had to vicariously uh, live through our experiences of being arrested or going to jail. Um, that her, that, that time in her life was, was behind her. Uh, recently I edited her, her writings from the sixties and the seventies. And you see her even at the, you know, the last years of her life in the seventies, She's getting arrested with the farm workers. She's traveling all around the world. She's taking on the IRS, refusing to pay taxes, and you know they threaten to put her out on the streets. She's starting a new home for homeless women. Uh, all of this, you know, when she's well into her seventies, uh, it's inspiring to me as I as I get older. <laughs> uh, I never saw that coming, but it, it comes to all of us. And uh, you know. Her, her her laughter. Uh, she was very very funny, and she uh, enjoyed humor. She enjoyed uh, you know even jokes at her expense, uh, and she had this kind of silver bell like laughter that was just uh, really infectious. Uh, so 
uh, you just wanted to be around her. Uh, and she made you feel that life could be an, an adventure and that you could be, and you could be, you could be better and that you could do amazing things. What was the, the worker like in those years? What are your, your yeah. memories of that time? Uh, that was in the late seventies. It was, a, it was not a, you know, a great time for New York city. Um, the city was kind of going bankrupt. Uh, there was a lot of, of uh, drug addiction and uh, street crime and violence. It was kind of a there was a kind of craziness. It was very different from when the Catholic workers started in the 1930s, and most of the people who who gravitated there were, uh, you know, working class uh, people who'd had uh, jobs and trades, and now were out on the street, homeless or or hungry, unemployed, uh, and uh, you know, great kind of connection with the labor movement at the time. Uh, when I was there, there was a lot of just pain and and uh, craziness, uh, and, it, and it came and seeped into the to the house itself. And there was uh, always kind of uh, you know this kind of danger, sort of feeling of of violence that could erupt at at, at any moment. Uh, it was a time. It was after the Vietnam War uh, and sort of the beginning of of a resurgent uh, you know peace movement, anti nuclear movement that that I was very involved in. Uh, Dorothy was very interested in experiments in alternative economics, uh, land trusts, alternative energy, the whole idea of small is beautiful. So she had her eye on the, uh, the kind of ecological uh, agenda that, 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 uh, that now is so vital. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the people who were there were, were people who, who uh, the volunteers, so, so-called, were, were people who'd come from, uh, you know, Catholic uh, families, middle class or working class, uh, gone to uh, some of them had been in religious communities or gone to religious, you know, Catholic schools. So I was very different from that because uh, I had uh, I'd been raised in the Episcopal Church, but had no previous real connection with with uh, with Catholicism. Uh, and I really came to the Catholic worker by way of the peace movement. Uh, and uh, the, the, you know, attracted to Dorothy's uh, witness against uh, war and civil disobedience and and that kind of aspect of things. So it was a little bit different. Sure. Do you, Do you remember as you were working on the the paper? Was there anything that that came in that you were able to publish or something either that you wrote or that she wrote or someone else that you were that still is something that you would go back to or, or send to <laughs> someone to read? Any any pieces you were especially proud to uh, to run when you were there? Uh, I, I, you know, Dorothy liked the paper to sort of be filled with a little bit of everything, things about peace, things about hospitality, things about uh, the poor. Uh, and and I kind of approached it in a different way, which was to uh, kind of think of thematic issues, uh, whether on, on peace or on, on what was going on in Latin America. Uh, once it kind of a little bit eccentric, I devoted an entire issue to the uh, 50th anniversary of, of the death of Sacco and Vincetti. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but the uh, I remember, you know, running articles and interviewing E.F. Schumacher, uh, the author of Small is Beautiful. I think that was great. And I think probably one of the most influential things I ever did, actually, uh, was uh, something that I got from my friend Jim Forrest, uh, who uh, just died in the past year, my oldest friend, who really had a big influence on my going to the Catholic Worker. He was a former uh, editor of the Catholic Worker and had been very close to Thomas Merton. And he wrote an, an essay about uh, Thomas Merton peacemaking. And in it, there was he, he quoted from a letter that Thomas Merton had sent him 
Uh, and I asked if I could could print that in the paper, and, and I probably didn't have permission from the Merton Trust, but I printed it with this uh, with this with the headline uh, "Letter to a Young Activist," uh, and it's it's very very famous. Uh, that begins, you "No, know, do not uh, uh, you know focus on in kind of results," and it was all about the kind of spirituality of of being a peacemaker and not being attached to the outcome and not measuring the importance of what you do by how how much publicity it gets, you know, because uh, it's going to have effects in ways that you never know. Anyway, it's just a short little thing, half a little you know, couple of columns. And uh, amazingly, that little excerpt became the most reprinted thing of Thomas Merton ever, apparently. That's what mm. I'm told. And I, I meet people all the time who say that that's, you know, of all the things of Thomas Merton, that's the thing that they, they remember. And it, it's still something I go back to and, 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 and read uh, very relevant today, I think. Sure. Well, I think then of your role at Orbis in a similar way too, of like finding these voices, people who have important things to say, and then being able to kind of share those things uh, with the world. And how, do you know how many titles you've edited at, at Orbis uh, over the years or released since you've been there? Do you have a ballpark estimate? Probably, I don't know, about 1,200 books, something like that. I, yeah. I didn't personally edit all of them, but, but sure. as editor-in-chief and publisher, you know, everything that's in print with Orbis today uh, has, has come out since I've been there. Um, right. So just, yeah, a lot of the, those messages, again, people who never, you never know, you kind of throw your, your message out into the world and, and see what happens. Um, and I wanted to go back though, before we go forward and you mentioned kind of coming to the Catholic worker without a Catholic background, interested in the peace movement after the Vietnam war uh, and people who, who aren't familiar with you might not know that, um, your father was, well, maybe one of the, the driving reasons the Vietnam war didn't drag on for even more years. Uh, someone who was involved in that, and just wondering if you could tell uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your father and uh, his influence on you. Uh, my father is uh, Daniel Ellsberg. He's st still uh, with us uh, happily at, at ninety one. Um, he was a um, had been a, a defense analyst uh, during the Vietnam War and before, uh, who became um, transformed by his experience in Vietnam and also by his uh, participation in a, a top secret study of the history of the Vietnam War that later became known as the Pentagon Papers. He was also very influenced by his encounters with young men who were going to prison uh, to, to, uh, in, in their non-cooperation with the draft in order to, to uh, protest the war. Uh, and all of that inspired him uh, in 1969 to copy this top secret uh, history of the war, 7,000 pages. Uh, fun fact, he actually asked me to help him when I was 13. Uh, and I spent a couple of, of, of days at a, at a Xerox machine doing that. Um, the papers finally, uh, he couldn't find anybody in Congress who would take them, which would, had been his intention to have hearings about them. So he released them to the press, initially the New York Times and then other papers. And it was a huge, huge story in 1979 uh, when these documents were first published. He was arrested and uh, charged with uh, multiple felony counts. He faced 115 years in prison. Uh, when you say that he helped shorten the war, the interesting thing about that is that it was sort of indirectly uh, because although the, uh, the papers uh, were shocking uh, about the history of lies and, and deceptions that went into uh, to, to the war, uh, they didn't seem to have a huge impact uh, because people believed that Nixon was going to get out of Vietnam. 
part of my father's motivation for copying the papers was his belief based on information he had from people working in the Nixon administration that Nixon was not getting out of Vietnam, that he intended to stay there indefinitely and do any kind of escalation necessary uh, to prevent uh, defeat, even threatening nuclear weapons and, and other kinds of escalation that actually happened. So Nixon was reelected by a landslide in 1972 after the Pentagon Papers. But it was Nixon's uh, obsession with my father and setting up the plumbers uh, to uh, to try to uh, uh, to stop him uh, that actually then had this backlash. Uh, they were caught then later on in the uh, Watergate Hotel, and it led to uh, his resignation. It also led to the resi- to the uh, dismissal of the charges against my father uh, when these revelations came out. So that had a, a great impact on me. He, that was uh, almost 50 years ago. His trial ended in 1973. Uh, and I had, it, it set me on my own kind of course of trying to figure out what, what my life was about. And it was you know, after my first year in college that I, that I felt that I couldn't find those answers in school. And that's what led me to the Catholic worker. I, I just wanted to be around people who had some sense of mission and purpose and were uh, truly uh, living out their their vision and their beliefs and values. Uh, so that's that's what the connection was there. Hmm. What what was life like growing up and, and this happening um, in your your family? I I know I've seen there are photos that there were different uh, entertainers, kind of people with their, using their platforms as celebrities who came to kind of su- support your father. I just can only imagine what it would be like to be in the spotlight like that as a, a young person or to see your father in the spotlight like that. Well, I, I had no interest in the spotlight. In fact, I got as far away as I could. I uh, My senior year of high school, I, I applied for a, to be an exchange student in England. Uh, so I was there during the whole last uh, year of his, his trial and just following mm. it through the news, which was difficult in its own way. Uh, but it was just too hard for me to be uh, up, up close to that. So people say, wow, that must have been really exciting. Uh, but the fact is that I, I lived in dread that, that he would be assassinated mm. you know, or, go to, or go to prison for the rest of his life. And uh, and we were closer to that than I even realized at the time when we learned more about what the plumbers were up to. Uh, so it was it was a stressful time, and I didn't like being in the shadow of all of that. Uh, and but it also you know encouraged me in a deep way to you know kind of find my own way, not to to live in his uh, kind of shadow or coattails, but to to find my own path. And that is you know is in a way. I always think of my going to the Catholic worker represented both the influence of my mother, who was a very devout Episcopalian, and uh, and then my father, who set this example of, of you know, moral heroism. Uh, and I uh, put those together, and it led me to the Catholic worker. And in some ways, it, it led me to you know what my life's work has been with it, Orbis, which has been trying to connect uh, faith with, with, with the world uh, and what the gospel has to say uh, about a world of injustice. And, and violence and war. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that uh, reflection uh, and how your story had led you to, to where you are. And uh, then also, again, as we had mentioned early on, a, a, a real interest from you in the witnesses of different holy men and women. Um, do you, You've written this, uh, this series, the uh, Blessed Among Us series had been published uh, in Give Us This Day, the daily prayer uh Mm-hmm. guide for for Catholics and, and then also in in books and do you uh, do you know how many 
saints you've written about uh, or saints and other holy men and women in for, for these in these columns people you've whose lives you've looked into yeah for this but not 12 years now I've been writing a daily piece for uh, give us this day of course a lot of them are repeated from year to year you don't just come up with a whole new list of saints but but I keep adding new ones and I think it's up to something like 1300 now or something like that there's what a bunch of them were combined in a, a collective published in a book called blessed among us but that would be building on top of uh, previous work I'd done. That's why they invited me to to, to contribute to this, because uh, it's 25 years ago now, uh, this year actually, that I, that I published my first book, All Saints, uh, which was 365 uh, reflections, one for every day, about people I called saints, prophets, and witnesses for our time. And the, the, the title, even All Saints, you know, was kind of you know, the Feast of All Saints, but it, it, it both on the one hand, it sends a message about the fact that we are all called to be to be holy, all called to be saints in different ways, but also that there's a communion of saints that's much larger and wider uh, than just the canonized saints. So I, I combined traditional saints uh, with uh, other, you know, uh, holy people, I would say, or prophets uh, that I thought speak to our time. And I, I when I published that, I thought, well, that, that's the end of that. But it was followed by, uh, you know, several other books on women saints and Franciscan saints and the, the people in Blessed Among Us. And so I, I've done about six volumes now on reflections on saints and holiness. Uh, and, I, and it really goes back to, you know, the I think the influence of Dorothy Day, at least well, the way I approach this, because she had a, a great devotion to the saints, but she really also had a uh, a wider uh, her own personal kind of canon, you might say, of, of people who inspired her or were witnesses uh, to uh, to the gospel, you know, in her mind, and that included writers, philosophers, activists, peace activists, labor leaders, uh, uh, journalists, poets, artists, uh, and so I brought all of that, you know, into my writing in All Saints, and uh, it's it's kind of interesting that that you know about fifty of the people that I wrote about in All Saints who were not at that time. Uh, canonized are have been beatified or canonized since then. So I have uh, a pretty good uh, track record on, on call, calling them. You know, if I could if I could transfer that to the horse races or something, I'd be really <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, that that's good to put that uh, that tag on. I, I one question then before we get into this, one of Dorothy Day's, mm-hmm. of course, most famous. I don't know, probably misunderstood. Um, quotes is that, you know, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. And now, of course, there's a move to make her a saint. What do you think she would should think of this? Or what do we not get by that um, from that quote? How do we misunderstand it? Yeah. What, what's your take on that on that quote and the, her move towards sainthood? You know, I, I always smile that that's like the most famous thing Dorothy ever supposedly said. Uh, and and as far as I can tell, it, it traces back to something that I quoted or you know, put in quotation marks in the introduction to my uh, edition of her writings back in the early 1980s. Uh, and it, it has since gone viral. Uh, and I didn't intend or to, to suggest that she was saying that saints you know, are not to be taken seriously. Uh, but she, she certainly didn't want to, didn't like it when people put her on a pedestal and would call her a saint while she was alive. And what they meant by that was, well, Dorothy can do these things. She's a saint. Uh, I could never do things like that. And uh, that was just you know, kind of drove her crazy because she felt that, first of all, all we're all called to be saints. There's, she didn't uh, think that, that that was a dismissible thing. She had great reverence for the saints, but she wanted to take the saints down from their pedestals to make them 
like our companions, people that we could who accompany in our in our lives, people who hold up models for how we ought to be, and not to be like them, but to to evoke and call out, inspire our own path to holiness. So, what would she think of being, uh, you know, on path to canonization? It's, you know, she she was she would be practicing holy indifference. I think, uh, realizing that that that's a, a that's a business for the uh, for the, for the church. There's no saint who would say, I can't wait till I'm dead and they call me a saint. Um, no no saint would ever say that. No holy person. Uh, she was aware of her own uh, sins, of all of the ways that she fell short. Uh, and she would not want people to want to be like her. They would, she would hope that her life would, would call attention to Christ and call people uh, to uh, follow him more faithfully in their own way. Well, you, you mentioned holy indifference, which is a great Ignatian uh, thing, though, though I'm sure we don't have a monopoly on uh, <laughs> indifference, but it was a key piece for Ignatius. And so that, I, again, it, for you, having written about over a thousand different saints and holy uh, prophets and, and witnesses. I wanted to see among all of those, that um, great cloud of witnesses, just pull out some of these Jesuits, maybe some not like Ignatius or Francis Xavier, as great as they are, uh, and others, but ones who people might not know as much about. So uh, I asked you to think about that, and you have three. And so I'd like to just kind of go through and see how what these have, um, to, have meant to you. So we'll go in chronological order. Uh, the, the first one you mentioned to me was Jean-Pierre de Cassade, Jesuit, uh, born in 1675 and died in 1751. So uh, what about de Cassade uh, has had an impact on your own life? Well, we don't really know very much about his life, and he's not a, he's not a saint or, or likely to be, to be uh, named one. Uh, he's famous for a book that was published 100 years after his death, called Abandonment to Divine Providence, uh, which is a, a great spiritual classic. Now, one of the ironies, you know, and I wasn't even aware of that, you know, when I've written about him, uh, included him in All Saints, is that there's some question about whether he actually wrote this book. Uh, it was published 100 years later. Uh, he had been giving retreats for some visitation nuns. Uh, and uh, in the archives, there was this manuscript and it had his name uh, written on it. And so it was published. Uh, under his his name, so I'll I'll call it his book. Uh, although if it's not by him, we don't we don't know exactly. Uh, but it was a book that I learned about from Dorothy Day because it was one of her really foundational uh, uh, spiritual works, and uh, it's all about uh, the, the the path to holiness is in uh, f- finding the will of God in the present moment, in all of our, our kind of daily encounters and, and the challenges and even the sufferings that we go through, that all of these are a kind of veil uh, that if uh, faith allows us to pull aside that veil and kind of see the underlying deep uh, truth. So he even talks about the, the present moment as a sacrament, of the sacrament of the, of the, of the present moment, just as, as you know, God is, is disguised in, in bread and wine or, or in the poor. Also, just in every moment of our lives, uh, we have a, an opportunity to, to, to say, uh, to consent to that and to find uh, what God is speaking to us in that moment. I mean, that there, there is a, a very Ignatian idea of finding God in all things. Uh, and that means uh, not just in the uh, holy kind of moments, we might say, but even just in everyday uh, kind of chores, and even in in, in times of suffering. Um, so that's it's a book. It's a, it's very short. 
I, I, I look at it all the time. Almost every page of it has got this some just absolutely beautiful uh, phrase or, or, or expression. And uh, and once you've read it, it it's you don't forget it. it you, you can you can bring it to all kinds of things in your life. The sacrament of the present moment almost sounds like it could be, you know, right out of the last few years in terms of the, I think a lot of kind of popular spiritual or new age writers even kind of talking about, you know, the past is past, the future is not here, this, the mm-hmm. moment is all we have. It's like mm-hmm. almost a cliche in some of those places, but to really connect it to, to sacramental imagination to kind of see that and to just be aware that awareness again it feels ahead of its time like i think a lot of the early ignatian inspired mm-hmm. stuff can uh does it read that way like that this is it's surprising that this is from close to like you know the early 18th century well it, it, you know he was not the only person to do that i mean a hundred years before that pascal uh his pensees you know writes exactly the same thing we're always thinking of the future or we're always thinking of the past and so we're never actually living in the very moment where, where we are and we we want to numb ourselves and anesthetize ourselves uh because uh, we, we we don't want to kind of deal with our own interiority we want to seek distraction all the time uh, Pascal is is amazing, but you can go back then to the, you know, the early Desert Fathers with the the, the hesychasm, where the stillness, where they their the you know, form of meditation and prayer that was kind of focused on their breath and 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 and, and the stillness or the repetition of a mantra or something like that that would bring you right you know into, into the kind of uh, present moment and open up the 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 possibility of being really alive uh, and open to the kind of sacred depths of 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 life and reality uh as as we actually live it instead of trying to always evade that so yeah there's there's something i think very very modern uh about that of course it goes back to buddhism uh too and there you find exactly the same thing uh meditations on on the present moment uh and that's you know, been popularized uh in the mindfulness kind of movement and Thich Han and who, who died recently so it's a it's a it's one of those classic core kind of, of themes uh, but you know, but de Cassad, you know, gave it a very Christian uh, slant, uh, and he yeah, there are just so many beautiful moments that he brings you to, to you know, kind of Mary's, uh, uh, you know, let it be done to me according to Thy will. That kind of uh, openness to what God is saying to you or, or challenging you. Uh, when when uh, you know Mary Magdalene realizes that the person she thought was the gardener was actually Jesus, or when. When uh, Saint, you know, Peter says, "You know, it is the Lord." You know, when he, after the resurrection, these kind of moments where the kind of veil of everydayness is kind of stripped away, and we uh, see its kind of deeper message and challenge. So, did, did Dorothy Day give you a copy of this, or did she just say, "Like, oh, you you got to read this one"? Do you remember uh, how you first came to it? It was a book that she just uh, mentioned all the time. Uh, she always was talking about the sacrament of, of the present moment. Um, when I edited her diaries, I, uh, I I gave it the title "The Duty of Delight," which was also a phrase that she used all the time. There were certain kinds of things like that. Uh, also, her attraction to Therese of Lisieux, who I think was very influenced by Dick Cossade, and her uh, idea of the little way, uh, the idea that that uh, the path to holiness lies uh, in our everyday kind of encounters and chores and sufferings. Uh, and 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 receiving that or accepting that, responding to that in the spirit of of, of love, that was probably the the central key uh, to Dorothy Day's own personal spirituality. 
And it was not that she just revered uh, Therese of Lisieux. She lived that. That was her spirituality on a, on a daily basis, was how to find uh, God in, uh, in, you know, how to practice her faith and her spirituality in everyday opportunities for patience, for forgiveness, for uh, uh, you know, curbing her kind of impulse to judgment uh, in her uh, responding charitably or with love to the irritating uh, people who were all around her making demands on her. Uh, and kind of the examination of conscience, also very uh, Ignatian, you know, that she really practiced that every day to kind of think about her her day and where were the things where, where God was present, uh, you know, that she had perhaps ignored, uh, how could she do better, uh, what were the things that she uh, regretted? Uh, what were the kinds of things that she felt she had to atone for? I love this idea of uh, a work written back then by this Jesuit who I'd never heard of until you know I was preparing for this conversation, having an influence on someone like Therese, having an influence on Dorothy Day, and then through her to you. And just the way that um, writing in particular, art or other things within the communion of saints can be kind of passed down and can touch all these different lives. And so like when I get a copy of this, which I, I will do now, that to think of myself like kind of reading alongside Dorothy and Therese and connecting this way and that they're the communion of saints, which we can again touch in a number of different ways can come to us through these works that have gone through the ages and have been passed down and among each other. Um, it's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so let's go a couple of hundred years into the future and talk about Alfred Delp SJ, someone again clearly a uh, a peacemaker uh, after uh, your own your own heart. So tell us a little bit about uh, Alfred Delp. Uh, Delp was a, a German uh, Jesuit. He had studied under Karl Rahner. Uh, he was uh, arrested by by the uh, Gestapo. Uh, when it was discovered that he was part of a of a, of a group of anti-Nazi uh, people who were meeting uh, to talk about uh, a future order, uh, you know, after the fall of, of of the Third Reich, which they anticipated, and that was a you know treasonous, uh, and he was arrested and he spent uh, uh, several months in in prison before he was tried and then executed. And while he was in, in prison, he wrote uh, letters, some diary entries, and, and a series of meditations during the kind of Advent season. Uh, he was in solitary confinement. His hands were manacled. Uh, he actually uh, was able to make his final uh, vows as a, as a Jesuit uh, while he was in, in prison before he was uh, finally executed, uh, you know, very close to the end of the war. Um, his, his writings were published, and in fact, I, uh, I reprinted them uh, in, in our Modern Spiritual Master series with an introduction by uh, Thomas Merton. And one of the reasons that, that, that he really sticks with me because he, he kind of takes a lot of those ideas of de Cassade, you know, and you see a, a Jesuit here living this in prison. Uh, and... Uh, and it, you know, not specifically referring to that, but this idea that that our our happiness does not depend on on the kind of circumstances, but that 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 with the eyes of faith, even in a situation like that, even facing death, uh, he can his his faith allows him uh, a certain kind of experience of freedom uh, and transcendence, uh, and uh, sense that there's a meaning to all of this uh, that perhaps obscure or invisible to him, and that all that's in his power is to kind of consent to that 
and to allow uh, God to speak to him in those circumstances. Uh, and it's uh, just you know very very terribly moving and you, and you think that you know you know I, I had occasion recently to quote to some of dealt to a friend of mine who has a terminal uh, illness and to realize realize that you know we think well yeah, there there are these martyrs who are in prison or in solitary confinement or being tortured or something but uh, but all of us just part of the human condition is being in, in a situation like that where uh, we're facing death, perhaps, or illness, or, or, or sorrow, suffering, uh, and that that uh, we don't have control over those things, but we can control or we have some kind of way of, of shaping our, our response to it, our attitude. Uh, and that can be a way of just rebellion and anger and frustration, being angry, or it can be, uh, you know, a kind of let it, let it be done to me according to your will. I, 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 I accept it. I open my heart to that. And, you know, as de Kassad says, you know, he, it's, it's, it's the difference between the two thieves who were, who were crucified with Jesus. And one is angry and bitter and, 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 and you know, just using his last moments, uh, you know, in spite uh, and the other, you know, you know, his his heart allows him to touch paradise, you know, even in those in those circumstances, and that's that's what moved me very much about Alfred Dell. I see. Again, you had mentioned his the connection to Advent and Christmas season, and was in prison in that time. And I know, like one of the lines from one of his last letters that has been used is it's the sense that all of life is Advent. Uh, this uh, sense of, of waiting. What what the, all of life is Advent. Uh, what what does that mean to you? Well, it, it it wasn't just personal for him. You know, he was living in the uh, in the last days of the Third Reich. Uh, he was living under bombardment and the war uh, approaching and Russians coming from the east and uh, all all of that, that that he had endured and lived and through and, and, and witnessed in, in those years. Uh, and that could seem like it's just uh, just total darkness. Uh, but this idea that um, that there, you know, of what it is to to live in in hope and waiting and an expectation, uh, and to you know to as he believed that that his life, you know, that was about it was a time of he said of sowing seeds, not the time of the harvest. Uh, and we we sometimes many people have spent their whole lives uh, in just planting those seeds uh, without any expectation of, of living to see the harvest. Uh, so I, I think it had a, a, a kind of both a personal and, and a kind of larger social uh, meaning for him. Sure. So the, the third Jesuit you sent also spent time in prison. Um, Walter Chiswick, an American Jesuit, but uh, most famous for his time in, in Russia, in Soviet Russia. Um, so yeah, what, what he's become, I feel like more and more talked about and written about in the, the past couple of years, at least since I've worked for the Jesuits, I've seen his name a, a lot, uh, but he was born in 1904 and, and died in 1984. And uh, yeah, what, what about his story uh, grabs your imagination? Chiswick was somebody I only learned about when I was writing uh, All Saints, and I was blown away by the fact that I had never heard of him uh, before. I don't think he was so well known back then. Uh, he, he published a couple of memoirs about his experience as a prisoner uh, in the Gulag. Uh, he was an American, Polish, American uh, uh, Jesuit who was in Poland, Eastern Poland, when when the Russians invaded, and he was taken with other uh, Polish workers to to Russia, work in a factory. 
Uh, and while there, it was discovered that he was an American priest and he was charged with being a, a spy and was imprisoned first for five years in solitary in the jail in Moscow. And then he was convicted of treason and sentenced to 15 years in, in, in Siberia and, and, you know, in prison camp. And so altogether, he spent 23 years uh, in, 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 in captivity. Uh, until he was finally uh, sent back to the United States. His, the Jesuit family, of course, had believed he was dead many years before. They, they were astonished. But as he wrote about, uh, he, he is, is probably uh, is the most explicit I, person I've, I've seen in kind of appropriating that message of, of de Cossard. Uh, he, he, he had no bitterness about his experience. He came, he said, you know, the, the worst times in his, his experience when, when he said he felt this kind of rebellion, like God, get me out of here! This is not what I asked for. Let me go. I, you know, I don't belong here. Uh, when he accepted the idea that he had no control over that, and that God's will was in every moment of his life, uh, okay, I'm a priest. I can be a priest in this situation. God is calling me to be a priest in this situation, and that meant both being uh, a witness to his fellow prisoners. Uh, to be able to comfort them and, and, and minister to them, but also as a as a as a kind of witness of Christian faith, uh, as an idea, his identification with the sufferings of Christ that could maybe give comfort to to others, uh, and he, he writes about you know you can be happy, you can even experience paradise, even in a, even in a, in a you know, Soviet prison camp. Uh, that was uh, one of the most remarkable stories I, I'd, I'd ever heard because you can. You can uh, say, yeah, it's all very well to say, you know, find the will of God, you know, when when, uh, when the will of God seems, uh, you know, pleasant. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was a it was a concrete uh, demonstration of of the of the truth or the wisdom of of what the Kassad was 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 writing about. Uh, so I, I think that that uh, Chizik is is a great saint of our time, and I, I'd be surprised if he's not canonized someday. The thing about Chiswick and Delp and Dorothy Day, in some ways, all connected, that these are, are people whose whose witness took them to some very uncomfortable places, right? And for me, it's almost like a, not even to put on a pedestal, but almost to kind of like, like I'm going to back away a little bit here. Like, this is, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. And this is a type of witness that like maybe is for some, but but not for me. Um, and you're... How how do you approach those who have done these kind of extreme things in your own life? How do we kind of learn from them uh, while we might? I mean, for instance, like I and I talked to Steve Kelly about this. He's a, a Jesuit who has mm-hmm. been in prison for uh, protesting nuclear facilities. You know, like I have three young kids. Like I I I can't do this exactly the same way. Um, or maybe I could. I don't know. My wife would be upset. But I. Mm-hmm. So just what what do we what do we do in our in our own journeys do you think like how can we pull from them without watering it down or uh yeah i'm just curious like how do you what do you do with that with that those witnesses that can seem so inaccessible well that was what was inspiring to me about you know really reading dorothy day's diaries because you think of her or a lot of saints on these amazing things they did and you think wow boy that took a lot of courage that i could never do that whatever and you see how dorothy day practiced that in a daily way uh, it doesn't start with, uh, you know, going to jail or, uh, you know, standing up, uh, you know, in, in courtroom or something like that. Uh, for her, it, it began with just the little opportunities in everyday life to be more patient, to be more forgiving. Uh, and that can sound 
trivial or simple. I mean, people make fun of, you know, Teresa Lazier. She talks about, uh, about you know, the, the patience of, of putting up with a, a, a nun next to her who's splashing, you know, water in the laundry or something like that. Uh, but Dorothy Day you know, saw that these are these like little tools, these little exercises that you practice in daily life uh, and they prepare you, uh, they form you uh, in order to uh, take, you know, those greater steps that may or may not be uh, presented to you. It's not like that happens to everybody, uh, but it's a kind of training ground. Uh, it's a kind of school of holiness uh, that begins in everyday life. So uh, being part of a family, having children, uh, is a, uh, an incredible school of patience, forgiveness, uh, forbearance, you know, uh, self-sacrifice, generosity, uh, of putting others uh, uh, first, even when it's irritating, even when it's frustrating, even though they drive you crazy, uh, and not just saying, oh, I'll, I'll go get another family. Uh, there's probably there's a better family out there for me, better children, <laughs> whatever. So uh, it actually, you know, so just as a monastery, St. Benedict says it's a school of charity. Everyday life, everyday life in a family is, is can also be a school of charity and holiness. Hmm. So thank you so much for all of these uh, reflections. I've uh, I've really enjoyed uh, hearing uh, your your. Um, your perspective on these holy men and, and Dorothy Day uh, as well. And uh, before uh, we sign off, though, I would, would like to give you the chance, since you've been so generous here, to promote any Orbis things that are either just come out or coming out soon, things that people can look out for if they're interested in some of these themes. Well, if I could uh, plug a book of my own that's coming out uh, in September, uh, sure. I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's called Dearest uh, Sister Wendy. A Surprising Story of Faith and Friendship. And it's uh, based on the correspondence that I, I enjoyed for the last three years of the life of Sister Wendy Beckett, who is a, an English uh, hermit who became very famous as for her programs about art. Uh, and in her last years, you know, when she was dying, we began this correspondence on a daily basis. And it really was about all the kind of themes that we've been talking about, uh, because what originally uh, brought us together was our interest in, in, in the question of saints and holiness. But it really became a, a, a ground for reflecting on our own life journeys and, and stories of faith uh, and, uh, and, how, and finding God in all things. So uh, I, I hope everybody will, will read that as well. Excellent. Yeah, well, we'll look forward uh, to that. And again, uh, Robert Ellsberg, thank you so much for taking this time and for bringing us on this, uh, this journey. I really, I really enjoyed the time. Thank you so much. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. 
Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>